Support comes from Pacific Science Center, celebrating spring at Paxi with butterflies at the Tropical Butterfly House, sea creatures in the saltwater tide pool, and Jane Goodall, reasons for hope at the IMAX Theater, a journey around the globe to share good news stories. Learn more at PaxSci.org. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. Seattle's Socialist City Council member is leaving office this fall. We'll discuss, and why is King County telling you to pour dish soap on the rat that's in your toilet? These are the kind of things we do for you. You'll have to wait to the end of the show for the rat, the toilet rat part. <laughs> I'm Bill Radke. Uh, looking at my, uh, my companions here, our uh, journalist roundtable, Seattle Channel host and producer Brian Callanan. Thanks for coming in. Great to be here, Bill. Public Cola co-founder and publisher Erica Barnett. Thanks for coming. Great to be here. Seattle Times transportation reporter David Croman. Welcome, David. Hello. Thanks for having me. And you can stream this show on YouTube and Facebook. Uh, just search KUOW Public Radio. A lot to talk about this week. Let's get right into it. Seattle's only socialist city council member, Shama Sawant, says she will not seek re-election. She's done at the end of her term in November. Elections are not the only, much less the primary path to political change because the political system is rotten from top to bottom under capitalism. She is leaving that rotten political system after being elected three times in her central Seattle district. Sawant takes credit for progressive victories, including hikes to the minimum wage, tougher renter protections, and now she's moving on to help launch a new national labor movement and workers' party. Capitalism needs to be overthrown. We need a socialist world, and that is only possible by mobilizing many millions of working people around genuine socialist ideas. That audio from King 5, by the way. Thank you. Erica Barnett, I have heard Sawant called the most divisive council member responsible for dysfunction, and I've heard she was irrelevant on the council. She annoyed the other members, and they tuned her out. Which is it? Well, I think um, both things can be true. Okay. Um, you know, I think that uh, I think that it is both true that she is incredibly divisive and has been incredibly divisive. But I think it is giving her um, too much blame to say that she is responsible for dysfunction on the council. She's one of nine members. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that um, you know, on the question of relevance, I mean, a lot of the things that she claims as victories, including the fifteen dollar minimum wage, including the so called Amazon tax, were actually uh, efforts put forward by other council members that, you know, were done in collaboration with people that Sawant would consider enemies, uh, like some of the traditional labor unions and like former Mayor Ed Murray um, on the $15 minimum wage. And so I think that, you know, she has a habit of sort of uh, jumping out in front of parades in a way. Mm. And um, and I think that's, that's what happened to two labor unions' frustration on the $15 uh, fight. Um, you know, her slogan was 15 now. It wasn't 15 in a couple years through a collaborative effort with labor unions and small businesses. Right. So um, so I think that, you know, it's overblown in both directions, um, her impact on the council. David, I think you were a little more bullish on on Sawant's impact. Yeah, well, I don't know about I don't know about bullish. I mean, Sawant is just so interesting because she kind of in some ways demands to be judged slightly differently than maybe you would judge a normal politician, which is, you know, most people, they want to pass a bill. They kind of start having conversations with people. They build a coalition around it, roll it out, and and hope it can get passed. Sawant's approach is not that. I mean, her approach is maximum pressure, maximum discomfort to anyone who might stand in her way and her the, the way of her supporters. And, 
you know, via that discomfort sort of getting done what she thinks needs to be done. And and so then, you know, that, that philosophy, which, you know, a lot of people support and a lot of people think is a good way to go in a sometimes overly staid and slow-moving process. She's been reelected multiple times. She has times, been reelected yeah. multiple times. But but the thing about that process is, you know, when when a bill is passed, like $15 minimum wage or the Amazon tax, which Erica's right, were not her bills in the end, uh, she can sort of claim credit for those because she says it was the pressure of her and her movement that kind of pushed that over the line. And it's kind of hard, you know, that frustrates um, to no end the people who, feel like they put in the hard work of, you know, building the coalition and collaboration to get it done. But, you know, in some ways, I, I, I don't know. I guess it's hard to say a negative to say that something wouldn't have happened without her. But I I think that there's probably something to that. I do think that there are um, issues around uh, labor or, you know, labor laws and tenant laws that I'm not convinced would have happened had she not been there to put that pressure on. It's hard for me to say it definitively, though. I think that's fair. And I, I think it's interesting to see this transition now to a larger stage. And I just wonder, she's been a, a bigger fish in this pond of, of Seattle, right? And trying to bring it to a larger stage with this movement she's talking about here, Workers Strike Back. I'm very interested to see what that's going to turn into. There's a rally that's going to be happening here in Seattle on March 4th, and she's going to be leading the wave there. So this idea, and I think this has been the hallmark of her of her terms. And she's the longest serving city councilman we have right now in Seattle. But that's been the hallmark of her term. She has talked about socialism from the jump. I mean, from the very, very early part of her campaign, when we saw Seattle transitioning, and I think this is part of the issue, perhaps, we saw Seattle transitioning to district-based elections. Her message really stayed the same. It's about a movement. It's about workers joining together. And granted, there are some overlays in between those uh, priorities and priorities of District 3 in the city council in the area there around Capitol Hill and Madison Park, etc. But I think there's a little bit of disconnect there, too. And I'm not exactly sure why she isn't running. I know that she had a very close, re, uh, excuse me, that recall campaign that happened a couple of years ago. She only survived that by 306 votes. So I'm thinking about that. There have been some different health issues that she's gone through. I know also that she's had to cancel a number of her committee meetings over the past couple of years here. So it's interesting to watch this transition and what it'll be at the national level. I think there are a few question marks around it right now. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would. What I think one of the biggest question marks at the national level is: is this really a national level campaign? I mean, Socialist Alternative has around a thousand members worldwide. That's her party, um, and and they are a very absolutist. Um, you know, they have a very absolutist perspective. They have denounced other socialist organizations as being sort of collaborationists um, with you know what she calls the corporate Democrats. Um, and so I I really do wonder whether we'll be talking about. I really doubt whether we'll be talking about this you know, national movement of millions um, in a year. And so I, I think that there are there are other reasons that people decide not to run. I was not at her press conference, but I heard that there were a couple of questions about, you know, what have you heard about your odds for reelection? And she rebuffed those and said that those were irrelevant questions. Um, but I think they're very relevant questions when you're talking about somebody who, you know, has been very strategic about her com- campaigns, has not taken democracy vouchers in, in the past so that she could raise the maximal amount of money. Yep. Um, you know, and, and I think to your point, Brian, I mean, she barely survived that recall campaign. I haven't seen polls 
polling, but I have heard that polling is not great uh, or was not great for her reelection chances. And she's going to have a lot. She was going to have a lot of opposition um, for reelection. It was already shaping up. And so I think those are those are really relevant questions. I don't know that we'll ever know the answer, but yeah. I, I think that they had to, you know, polling and um, and fundraising had to be a factor. And that polling piece, just thinking about it, I mean, we have four city council members, standing city council members right now who are not running again. So I think they're reading some of those tea leaves, too. We talk about Sawant not running again, but we've got Peterson, too, in District 4. We've got Juarez in District 5. We've got Councilmember Herbold in District 1 there. So there's a lot of open seats here. And I think about the future of the city council, too. This is a big part of it. Is it going to be a more progressive city council coming out the other side of this election here? Is it going to be a little bit more moderate, conservative? I think that's very much up in the air right now. And that's I guess an exciting part, but it's a, another big, big question mark on what's going to happen with those elections. Well, what about District 3? They, As we said, they elected a socialist alternative representative multiple times. Mm-hmm. Do we expect another? Is some of this opposition just about Shama Sawant herself? And do we expect a different socialist alternative candidate to be elected in District 3? I see shaking heads. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. I mean, the... Sawant, through her whole tenure, she she always talked about how it was not about her, it was about the movement. There's a story about when Socialist Alternative decided to run a candidate. It was sort of a, you know, they, they chose who it would, their representative would be by committee. That all said, it really is about, I mean, she is a one-of-a-kind politician. She, um, you know, lover or hater, uh, she is um, unapologetic, totally uncompromising, um, she, when she talks about, um, you know, the, the corporations and things, you know, she's convincing, uh, I, I just have a really hard time seeing somebody who is not Shama Sawant carrying that same torch because I think she just, she has done it in a pretty effective way. And, um, I think people have just come to tie that socialist, socialist alternative identity really, really closely to her. Uh, I just have a really hard time thinking that um, someone else can come in and fill that space and, and garner any kind of anything like the same level of support. Well, and I think, you know, this speaks to a broader question about the um, direction of the council. I think District two, 3, uh, rather, very well could elect somebody else who Again, identifies just as a socialist. Again, just to remind Central Seattle, yeah, yeah. Yamasawans, mm-hmm. Capitol Hill, Mattis Park. So right. And, and the, the Central District. And, um, yes. you know, I think they very well could elect someone who identifies as a socialist because I think the um, the city has moved, the left in the city has moved in that direction, um, with or without Sawant, frankly. And, mm. you know, Tammy Morales down in District 2, the Rainier Valley, um, identifies as a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. Of course, all uh, local elections are nonpartisan officially, but um, but I think that certainly could happen, and I, I bet we will have somebody who's you know on the left in that race. But yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with David. I mean, socialist alternative specifically, you know, I mean they've said you know we're we're bowing out of elections. We don't care about elections anymore. Elections are meaningless, and I think that is because Sawant is you know is a is a personality and somebody who's very appealing. And you know, it's lightning in a bottle. I don't think they can do that again. And and to your earlier point too, I mean, I think s- electing a socialist sort of broadly. I mean, there's some nuance to that, which is that, you know, in her announcement that she published in The Stranger in the op-ed, she ragged on uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who was a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. And Congress member Pramila Jayapal. And Congress member Pramila Jayapal, who endorsed her in 2015. Mm -hmm. Um, And and, and in fact, also kind of ragged on the Democratic Socialists of America. So, you know, DSA is is in some way, that's the sort of Bernie Sanders brand of socialist uh, which is really kind of more, um, 
you know, the kind of Scandinavian version of socialism. Mm-hmm. I would say Shama Sawant's socialism is Trotskyite, uh, pure Marxist. I mean, it's uh, she she early in her campaign. We, we didn't really ever hear much about this later on. Advocated for like nationalizing Boeing. <laughs> you know, these mm-hmm. are right. like pretty communist, literally socialist ideas. Not it, it goes well beyond the kind of DSA platform of you know healthcare for all that that sort of thing. And and just in terms of the people who have filed. For these open positions now, there is a DSA candidate out there. Uh, Matthew Mitnick has filed in District Four, where we are right here in the in the University District area. But in District Three, I think this really opens up a, a lot of possibilities here in terms of the people who have filed. There was a, a relatively big uh, media covered it type of event happening here on Monday. Uh, Joy Hollingsworth uh, announced her candidacy for that area. She runs a cannabis business, has for many years with her family, LGBTQ, African-American, has a history with sports, with hoops, uh, uh, dating back many, many years, and uh, has that background there. So I think it's going to be interesting to watch her campaign, but there are a number of others, too, that are going to be filing there as well. And again, with the filing deadline not until May, I think there's going to be a lot more activity going on with this race in District 3 and all the others, too. Uh, we're going to have dozens upon dozens of candidates over the next couple of weeks with these, quote unquote, open positions here with the incumbents not running again. Can I ask one more question about uh, Sawant and the workers? Um, what do you expect in March and beyond? So, so uh, Sawant is known for civil disobedience, is known for letting protesters into City Hall mm. and marching to the mayor's house and and other things. What do you expect at this rally on March 4th? And then how much impact, we touched on it slightly, but how much, you know, Seattle has a history of labor activism. How much do you expect from this movement that someone says she's leaving to to, to rally for it feels like it's one step beyond a labor movement to me and it's so focused on on what she's doing and workers strike back i i i know that she's had some challenges and has definitely dealt with a number of starbucks workers here in seattle and, and pushing them to unionize etc but I, i'm just unclear on, on what that's yeah. going to be because the bottom line seems to be we need socialism now which is a different thing than saying Let's have unions more involved. That's the way I see it, at least. Yeah. And let's recall, you know, when the carpenter strike was happening, she sort of jumped out ahead of that as well and allied with some folks who were calling for wildcat strikes and were doing a lot of stuff far outside what the union wanted. Hmm. Um, And, you know, and they asked her to stop and she said, no, um, this is, you know, I have nothing to do with, you know, organized labor in this case. Um, Hmm. I, you know, I'm doing my own thing. And uh, and that was, you know, to use that word again, it was very divisive with the actual union that was trying to get changes done, um, changes made, you know, in terms of uh, the the uh, the contract that they were negotiating at that time. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. Uh, That is uh, Councillor Shama Sawant, Seattle City Councillor, not running for re-election this fall. And we can go straight from from her call for a socialist uprising to the call for a wealth tax in the state of Washington. After we take a quick break, we'll come back in just a moment. Support comes from Pacific Science Center, celebrating spring at Paxi with butterflies at the Tropical Butterfly House, sea creatures in the saltwater tide pool, and Jane Goodall, reasons for hope at the IMAX Theater, a journey around the globe to share good news stories. Learn more at paxi.org. 
Support comes from the Discovery Inn on Washington's San Juan Island, an island getaway that's a ferry ride away, now taking reservations for summer and fall. More information and booking available at discoveryinn.com. It's KOW's Week in Review with Seattle Times, David Croman, Public Colas, Erica Barnett, Seattle Channels, Brian Callanan, and I'm your host, Bill Radke. And a proposed Washington state wealth tax has some support from two-thirds of Democratic lawmakers. KOW's Amy Radel this week described this potential new tax. The wealth tax proposed by Washington Democrats this week would impose a 1% tax on people with more than $250 million in financial assets. Representative Mi Lin Tai says these Washington residents should pay higher taxes. These are the wealthiest individual in our state, and in some cases, the entire world. Jason Mercier with the Washington Policy Center opposes the tax and says it would drive wealthy people to move away. There have been examples of countries with these, and the trend has been to repeal them because of the damage that they caused. Both sides agree that any wealth tax would be challenged in court. This comes as the Washington Supreme Court prepares to hear arguments about the constitutionality of the tax on capital gains enacted last year. Why, Brian, why would this proposed wealth tax be challenged in court, and what do you think might happen? I'm not 100 percent. I've given up on predicting court cases here, but but I do know in terms of the constitutionality of it, that's the big challenge. And this is the discussion that is happening around uh, the capital gains tax right now. So it depends on how you look at this tax. If if it's a property tax, then it needs to apply to everybody uniformly. That's what our our state constitution says. So could you say that about this when it applies just to the wealthy? That's going to be the question out there. And then is this a tax on income in some way? Could it be seen that way or viewed that way? That's also unconstitutional as well. So those are going to be the big challenges. That's what's been happening with uh, with the capital gains tax so far. And I imagine some of the similar challenges legally are going to be going on around this wealth tax, too. Used to be a billionaire tax, right? Right. Now it's 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 a quarter billionaire and above tax, mm-hmm. which still only brings us to, I think, 700 people that would apply for, that would apply to? Yeah, these all feel like imaginary numbers right. a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it, it, yes, last time it came up, um, which I believe was in 2021, it was a it was a billionaire tax. And I don't know, I can't remember how many people that was, but all of the same issues still pertain. Yeah. Um, and it's been derailed twice. Um, it got pretty far in 2021, but uh, but ended up getting uh, getting killed at the last minute after making it through some committee uh, trials. But uh, but yeah, I mean, this is going to be ultimately, if it passes, it's going to be a huge court case that'll drag on, and you know, and we'll see. Um, I, I'm not I'm not certain that this is uh, necessarily. Um, you know, if you want a successful path to get a lot of money for things like housing now, um, I think that, you know, perhaps the proposal that Jay Inslee has put forward for $4 billion uh, by lifting a bond cap, um, a debt ceiling, rather, um, on how much the the state can um, take out in uh, in debt and bond against might be a little more of a short-term win. But, um, but yeah, we'll see. I mean, the session is very young, and this will definitely continue to be a, a big debate. You see, it feels abstract. Then there's the idea of 
how you figure out who's a quarter billionaire. Well, it's just that much money. I mean, you know, does is it more equitable if it's just billionaires? I mean, a quarter billion is is more money than any of us will ever fathom in our lifetimes, right? So it's more than I get an hour. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you know, you can you can understand how you tax an income tax because you you know you get X amount every year, and you've got your W two or whatever other forms you you have to report that. But billionaires really don't make income. I mean, it's not really about income for billionaires. They have stocks and they own stuff that's worth a lot. And so the, the challenge is how do you tally all that stuff and tax it? Because I, you know, I think the, the closest parallel is the property taxes, mm-hmm. as Brian said. But you know, you you own one house and you can kind of value that house. But like, should so you go into the houses of billionaires and count up all the Picassos they have and yeah. and get an appraiser into it? You know, it's just I, I think the like Eric, Eric was saying, this in some ways feels to me more like a expanding of the um, what's the window? The uh, basically expanding this discussion further. It's a way mm-hmm. to kind of push forward. But as far as like when, if, and when this, even if it does passes, this will actually be bringing in money. Um, I, I don't know. It seems um, like you were saying pretty abstract at this point. And, and when you put it in the context of what the legislature is dealing with right now, they have a. A surplus that they're dealing with right now, and they're trying to figure out how to spend it. I mean, $2.6 billion of surplus, and I think some of the more moderate, maybe conservative voices in Olympia, and there are plenty of them outside of the bubble here in Seattle, it's important to recognize that. Some of them are saying, okay, this whole idea of bringing in more dollars through wealth tax, that sounds great and all, but we've got the surplus. We have people who are hurting. Why don't we reduce that tax burden on them? Why don't we reduce the sales tax? Again, these are some different things that are proposed out there, but this idea of we need to bring in more money versus we we need to reduce the taxes that are already onerous on people right now is an important part of this, too. Yeah. What about the flip side of a wealth tax, Brian, a guaranteed low-income payment? Yeah, I w- I'm glad you went there because this is an issue that I'm working on for Seattle Channel. I think it's very, very interesting. So this is uh, Representative Liz Berry out of the 36th District, the Queen Anne area there. She is working on this right now, and this is the idea to provide a guaranteed monthly income. Uh, to different people, they'd have to meet a certain income threshold. They'd have to make 50% of area median income or lower, but this would be something that money would be given to them, and that money would be dependent on where they live. If they're in Seattle, it would be a little bit more. It basically ties to housing prices there, so around $2,000 for Seattle, going down to other amounts for other people uh, around the state. And I think it's really interesting because this has been tried out in the city of Tacoma, And they did a program where they ended up giving uh, about $500 a month to 110 different families, uh, all of them in need. All of them had a child at home that was less than that was younger than 18. And what they found with this project in Tacoma was that the money that was given to these people was used for rent. It was used for utilities. It was used for food. And in one case in particular, a case I'm profiling, it actually was just that amount needed such that this person involved could actually apply for a mortgage and actually own a home. So there have been examples of this around uh, the country. Again, we do get back to this whole concern over, hey, rather than giving away money, why don't we lower taxes? I know that's going to be going on in the legislature around this. But very interesting. Liz Berry brought this up last year. She's bringing up again this issue this year. I'm really interested to see where it goes. I mean, I think study after study, you know, going back decades has shown, um, and, and even more in recent years, um, has shown that giving people money, you know, you characterize it as giving away money. I mean, 
you know, we we give away money all the time in the form of tax breaks to corporations. And, you know, I mean, that is that is what taxes, you know, are spent on are, are giveaways to people in the state. Right. Um, a direct, you know, a direct giveaway or a direct allocation of funding. I mean, it's not at all surprising. And, you know, and I think it's, um, you know, a little bit insulting to people that these questions keep getting asked, because it is not surprising that people when they get five hundred dollars, if you are, I got five hundred dollars, you know, that they spend it on their basic needs first. And, you know, and I think that and I don't know if this has been studied directly for for this tax, but I think that, you know, this could be the difference between homelessness and having housing for people. I mean, people are not, you know, going out and um, being, you know, so-called welfare queens. And I know you're not saying this, Brian, but um, but, you know, spending it on um, steak and lobster. And so what if they are, frankly, but, uh, you know, but that is not what's happening. And, And I think that adding in layers of like, we're going to take a little bit off the property tax here, and that'll mm-hmm. trickle down to renters somehow, or we're going to take a little bit off the sales tax, you know, and that'll trickle down. That's 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 adding layers of government that I think doesn't need to be there, frankly, I yeah. mean, give people money, and they spend it on their needs. And, and the important part of this, again, is just that it's focused on people who are lower on that income scale. You might remember Andrew Yang, when he was the presidential candidate, saying $1,000 for everybody. For everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This one's more focused on, okay, who are the people that are making the least. Let's make sure we give that aid directly to them. And I, I, I'm very interested to see where this will go. This is a different tactic, but it has worked in the state of California. It's worked in other areas around the world. So we but shall is it see. Just income, as we were saying earlier, you could have wealth but low, be low income. True. True. This is. I think this is the people who are definitely in need. Yeah. Bill. Yeah. These are the okay. people who are making the least and are are needing these other uh, services to get by. And this wouldn't affect those other services. Yeah. This wouldn't be a deal where, oops, you're making a little bit more. You can't have this. It's not a situation like that. So this is something hopefully hopefully could add to the mix and help these people out. Yeah. I mean the the we we've kind of we've kind of decided we're already okay with giving people. Some help. I mean, there are programs, TANF and SNAP, but vouchers, or the, or the stimulus, vouchers. stimulus yeah. during yeah. the pandemic. Yeah. Well, yeah. but I guess what's what's changing, it feels like, is um, a move away from this kind of Bill Clinton 1990s um, approach to welfare in which you have to kind of hit all these benchmarks. You have to show you're looking for a job X number of hours a week and you have to, uh, you know, meet with a per, you know, drive to the office. It's almost like being on parole in some ways when you're getting some of these benefits. And so the big difference here is, well, we haven't really tested out what happens if we just don't have any of those requirements and we just give the people the money they say they need. And um, so in some ways, the it's less about for me, it's less about the dollars that are going out the door because we do spend money on dollars going out the door. But it's um, how willing are people to just trust? Because the other programs are not really built on trust. They don't trust that the money going out the door is going to be spent in a way that those people deem appropriate. And so therefore, they add on all these requirements that they have to be doing X, Y, and Z to qualify for that money. Mm -hmm. This is just saying, okay, we're going to try it out by just trusting that the people who uh, say they need this money actually need this money and are going to spend it on ways that help them and and give them better lives. And here's another proposal to help make housing more affordable. That is the idea of upzoning. State lawmakers might overhaul the state's zoning laws to catch up with the housing shortage. Here's KUOW's Joshua McNichols telling us about that this week. The middle housing bill would allow duplexes, triplexes, and fourplexes in cities across Washington state. It would allow sixplexes, too, if they're near transit or if two or more of the homes are affordable. The bill would override cities and homeowners associations that try to ban those homes. 
Last year, a similar bill failed to pass, but between sessions, the bill's bipartisan sponsors shored up support from a vast array of stakeholders, including environmental groups, employers, housing developers, and state government officials. The Association of Washington Cities, which helped sink the bill last year, says it's open to negotiation. It is? How so? What Do we think the Association of Washington Cities is going to be cool with this upzoning? It's a pretty powerful lobby. I know that was the big push behind this last time. And this is just one of those discussions that's going on everywhere. It's certainly going on in the city of Seattle, city of Seattle, as we talk about the comprehensive plan that they're working on, talking about this zoning. But Erica, I know you've done a lot of work on this when it comes to middle housing and where these things should go and when it's near transit and all that. Yeah, I mean, we've covered this a lot in the past. And I think one of the uh, one of the key obstructions, in addition to the Association of Washington Cities, has been um, State Rep. Jerry Paulette, who has been very opposed to this bill. Um, He uh, lost his committee this year um, where he was blocking it in the past, so could move forward um, simply because of that. Um, You know, I think the area for negotiation is going to probably be around how far out from transit stops this this quote-unquote middle housing. I hate that phrase so much. Um, (laughs) Why? It just doesn't mean anything. I don't know what the middle of what. It just drives me crazy. But anyway, um, that's that's what everybody's calling it. So, um, but it's not a it's not a single family house. It's not a giant. It's right in the middle. uh, Uh huh. Yeah, it's right Right. in the middle. Um, So, but anyway, I think the negotiations will be around how far out from transit stops that's allowed. Um, you know, and and also what? How do we define you know the middle? Is it uh, is it fourplexes? Is it duplexes? Um, is it you know sixplexes? And, and so I think that advocates for urbanism um, would say you know we need to go way far out and stop kind of relying on this outdated urban village strategy that we have in Seattle, where all development is sort of concentrated along these big, busy, you know, dangerous arterials, and then it kind of very quickly turns into single family only. Um, and I think that the Association of Washington Cities will likely argue that it should be concentrated mm-hmm. <laughs> in those big dangerous arterials and, yeah. you know, and preserve single family housing everywhere else. Well, because if you did this whole idea of within a half mile of transit in Seattle, it would essentially be everywhere that sixplexes would happen. And I think that's this, it's this whole idea of local control. Seattle wants it. Every city wants it in terms of how they manage their growth. I know that Jim Farrell, the one-time uh, prosecutorial candidate here in King County, the mayor of Federal Way, has been pushing back on this with this whole idea of needing local control. And I think there's going to be other cities around King County and around the state that are going to push back on this, too. So it's the state trying to set, as I understand it, a floor rather than a, a ceiling on this. This is kind of the baseline that they're trying to establish year, and there's going to be a lot of devils in the details, I think. But David, that's a, typically a Republican position is local control, but won't the GOP like how free market this yeah, loosening this, of, re- of regulation would be? building well, more I housing. Think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think once you start talking about housing and uh, density, then partisan lines kind of disappear. Okay. Anyone can be a NIMBY in any way. Yeah. yeah. There's, um, and so, uh, but from what from what the Democrats are saying, so this you know this bill got pretty far last year, but fell short kind of in the last day, really. Um, but from what Democrats are saying this year is they are saying that they have bipartisan support on this, um, and you know you can understand why because it's it doesn't require more taxes and it doesn't require more revenue. I mean you're just kind of um, changing laws so that developers, private developers, uh, have more opportunities to to build more housing. Um, so you know the the local control thing you know that that is brought up every year. I think the point the, the reason it maybe not won't carry as much water this time around is it's the local control argument has been happening for decades now and it's uh, I think a, 
uh, proponents of this bill now say that local control is is not really about local control. It's about control not doing this mm-hmm. um, at a time when you know a million people are, have moved to Washington, but we've only added three hundred thousand housing units. Um, I, I think this is kind of the state stepping in and saying, "Okay, uh, we've tried local control." Um, even in Seattle, there in 2015, they had proposed doing something kind of like this, adding duplexes and triplexes citywide, and it it didn't go anywhere. It it got killed pretty quickly. So even in Seattle, this was not moving forward. So this is the state sort of saying, "We we gave we gave you guys the chance to try this, and it it hasn't done anything, and so now we're gonna we're gonna step in." Yeah, and I think to, to David's point that NIMBYism is a nonpartisan issue. I mean, I think um, you know wealthy uh, people or just even people who own houses and bought them in the '60s for cheap um, tend to be united and you know sadly in their opposition to renters often. And that's what we're talking about with sixplexes. We're talking about small apartments, and you know we see them all over Seattle, but they're very much concentrated in those areas where they've been segregated to. Yeah, yeah if housing is affordable, that means the price of somebody's home is. Falling or not going up. Well, and, and, can't have one without the other. And Seattle is a majority renter city. I mean, I think it's important to point that out, too. And there's a lot of people that are talking about this. You talk about the coalition in support of this. The Builders Association of Washington and the Sierra Club working together and Amazon and Transportation Choices Coalition. That is a group of strange bedfellows there. And I, I'm really interested to see where this would go. I talked with Jessica Bateman about this, the representative from Olympia who was working on this last year about this. And I, I think it's got some legs. I'm, I'm really interested to see where this goes. Erica, speaking of housing, if you live in a tiny house village, do you have the full rights of a tenant? Can you challenge an eviction? Yeah, this is so interesting. I wrote this week about a case in which um, a person living at a tiny house village, which are, you know, a form of shelter that um, that exists all over Seattle and actually in Tacoma and Olympia, um, was kicked out. Uh, he t- was told he had 48 hours to, to leave, and it was over, you know, a dispute that he had with a staffer. And without getting into the details of that dispute, I think the legal issue here is really interesting because he's saying he was unlawfully evicted. Um, tiny house villages sort of started out as, you know, being considered encampments. Then they were upgraded to enhanced shelter. And now this challenge is saying, no, actually, they're housing. And, you know, part of the argument is that people live in these places for a very long time. This particular um, guy lived in his tiny house for two years and, you know, had just been unable in, in his account to get housing. Um, he is housed now. But um, but if, you know, if a if a judge were to say this is housing and tenants or people living there are tenants with tenant rights, that would, you know, really change the nature of what at least tiny houses are and possibly shelter more broadly. Um, because you could say, you know, I need, uh, I, you know, you have to give me a three-day notice of a violation and I can challenge that in court. You have to give me a 10-day notice for, you know, other types of violations. And you just, you just get more of a right to be there. Um, well, why does that kick in at the tiny house level? How does it compare against uh, with a tent, which is also somebody's home? Right. I mean, well, it's not considered someone's home, right? I think you'd have a much harder argument to make that a tent in a park is your home. Um, but, you know, I think that tiny houses are often characterized as being different than other types of shelter because they have a four walls and a door that locks. And a lock, yeah. But then the question is like, okay, well, our, do you have a right to be at a hotel, mm. for example? So I just I think it raises a lot of really interesting Legal questions. Um, Lehigh, which operates these villages, um, low income housing, low income housing institute, argues that you know if you make tiny houses into housing, or if you start 
categorizing them that way, it it's going to change the nature of shelter. And they say, you know, it's going to make it impossible for us to take in people with, you know, with addiction issues, with, you know, mental health issues that, you know, lead to sort of outbursts and things that make it hard to live with a person in your community. Mm-hmm. So um, there's going to be, if this goes to trial, and we don't know that it will, uh, there's going to be a lot of really interesting arguments. And that's the important distinction for me that I thought you brought up. Great piece, Erica, on this one. This whole idea of if you're applying to get into a, an apartment, right, you've got to go through a credit check. You've got to go through a criminal background check or whatever else. Those barriers do not exist for people who are going into these into these uh, these tiny houses. And I think that's a really important part of this. You know, if we're going to be real about trying to get people, meet people where they are and try to get them into uh, these different transitional encampments, as we've heard them called with tiny houses there, then we've got to be real about that and putting on some extra rules about eviction laws and whatever else that I, I think that would change the game completely for tiny houses. David, one more item on the legislature before we take a break, if I could. Mm-hmm. Um, the the lawmakers are talking about a tougher blood alcohol limit, and that's moved forward this week. This would lower the blood alcohol threshold to convict somebody of impaired driving. It would be down from 0.08 down to 0.05, which Governor Inslee is into. I think it will send a message to people to moderate some of their drinking and driving behavior. So I'm convinced it will save lives over the long term. First of all, David, why is this being proposed now? It's being proposed now because a lot of people are dying um, in, on the roads in Washington, um, estimating 745 this year, which I think is the most since 1990, um, if you adjust that for population to a certain extent. But regardless, that's a lot of people dying. And the proportion of deaths that involve someone who's impaired um, – be it drugs, alcohol, some combination of the bo- of both, has also increased. So a few years ago, it was something like 50% of deaths involved impairment, and now that's closer to 60%. So um, it, it is helping to, you know, the, the reason people are dying on the roads is complex, and there's a lot of reasons, but a big one is that uh, people seem to be driving drunk or high more often. And so um, the thought behind this, you know, when you talk to the, the folks behind this bill, in some ways, it's less about the particulars of the blood alcohol limit, although that is, of course, part of it, and more about um, the sense that people have kind of forgotten that you should not be drinking and driving. That mm-hmm. that point oh eight uh, sort of, in some ways, implies like a game. How close can you get to point oh eight mm-hmm. and still get behind the wheel? Can you get to point oh seven? And you know, this is sort of saying, look, that's not, we're, you know, we're not letting that fly. At, under this rule, you could have one beer, one drink, and get busted for driving. Um, and um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's coming up now just because um, legislators are under a lot of pressure to do something about how many people are dying on the roads. And this is a pretty clear way. And Utah is the only other state that has done this. And the data coming out of Utah is pretty promising. Obviously, Utah is not Washington. There's a different drinking culture in Utah than there is in Washington. But um, as a case study, it's it seems to provide some evidence that lowering the blood alcohol content limit um, can make a difference. Can I ask a question, though, David, because I know a lot of the work that you've done over the past couple of months here looks at how different officers are enforcing the laws that we have on the books. Is that a piece of the puzzle here, too? Because I know they're not writing as many tickets. Are there enough officers out there to enforce this, that kind of piece of it? Is that part of this? Yeah, I mean, enforcement is still way down. Um, In fact, um, I think it was right around the beginning of the pandemic, um, the Seattle Police Department disband had a DUI unit, and they disbanded it, actually. Um, 
that doesn't mean that Seattle police officers still can't write DUIs, but right. as far as a dedicated unit goes, that that was disbanded. And you know, just across the whole state, the number of tickets being written and citations being written is still way down um, pre-pandemic. So, you know, I think that's part of it. And it, um, but again, back to the point of the people who are putting this um, uh, through through the legislature. Um, you know, if you look at Utah when they passed this, there, there doesn't seem to have been in any enormous spike in arrests even or enforcement but the idea is you kind of you pass this you you do a marketing campaign you go out there and say hey you know one drink and you could still get in trouble the hope is that people kind of get this message and just maybe you know call a taxi or whatever yeah, I mean, I think I, I think this is this is a curb on driver behavior that um, you know is a lot easier than um, you know providing public transit mm. um, to everybody so they don't have to um, you know to feel like they have uh, to make a choice between driving and you know I don't know and calling a taxi which can be expensive. Um, but it's obviously, I mean, it is one of the things you know in addition to alcohol taxes that is actually effective at reducing drinking. And um, and specifically drinking and driving. And I think that the marketing, you know, is you just basically needs to be don't drink and drive, um, you know, and here's the consequence if you do. Um, so it, we'll see if uh, we'll, we'll see if it passes and, and what kind of impact it will have. But it does seem very promising. Um, and with the data out of Utah showing that this actually does change people's behavior and people shouldn't be drinking and driving. Yeah, it's so. difficult to oppose this, really, when you get down to it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the the opposition, you know, the the opposition that I've heard um, comes actually from from a Democrat, a public ex DUI public defender, um, Jesse Solomon, who he kind of made the point. Well, in some ways, it's not relevant because officers have the discretion to arrest people under point oh eight already if they're seen to be impaired. You can make that um, arrest. And then the other point that he brought up um, is that uh, the the state toxicology lab, which is responsible for running all the blood alcohol tests that prosecutors send to them is working on like a year backlog. It's a really slow bogged down process right now. And so, you know, some questions around whether making this change, the, the state could even handle it. Um, but the, the bill passed out of committee eight to three in, um, with both Democrats and Republicans voting for it. So um, I think the opposition to it is going to, I mean, you, you know, you never know in the Washington state legislature, there's so many bureaucratic and, the technical hurdles that these bills need to clear, things die. But as far as political support, at this point, it certainly appears that it's there. Yeah, I mean, I think the argument for it is more, you know, a preventative measure. Right. Um, I don't think, I mean, there's also a question about, you know, to your point, David, there's a question about whether people should be locked up for long periods for DUI. That's happening at the local level in King County. People, you know, get uh, get a DUI, get booked into jail, and then they can either pay for, you know, an expensive bracelet to wear to monitor their alcohol content, or, you know, if they can't afford it, they end up sitting in jail forever waiting for these toxicology results, um, which is also an unfair outcome. But, you know, if it is, you know, it, it seems as though, unlike many other criminal laws, you know, DUI limits actually do have an impact on people's behavior. So, um, you know, in that in, in the sense that it can be a preventative rather than, you know, an encouragement to more enforcement, more punishment, more mm. people sitting and rotting in jail, um, you know, that seems like a good outcome. That is Publicola's Erica Barnett, and we have Seattle Times transportation reporter David Croman and Seattle Channel host and producer Brian Callanan all talking with us on Week in Review. You're listening. You can also be watching on YouTube and Facebook where we live stream the show. Did I say you were the co-founder and publisher of Publicola, by the way? 
you, I don't know if you did or not, okay. <laughs> but okay. I'll take it. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's a good group. It's worth listening to on KUOW, and we're not done. We're going to come back and uh, talk about the state of the city and even have a reason to smile. I'm not uh, going to be paying the billionaire tax, about, <laughs> but a lot of my money is tied up in dish soap to put on toilet rats, as we'll <laughs> oh, discuss. Mm-hmm. So stay tuned. It's KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. Layoff news continues. Microsoft said it plans to cut 10,000 jobs, but fewer than 900 in the Seattle area, uh, which surprised me. We spoke to an economics and business professor who said a large majority of workers laid off recently have been able to get new positions within three months. This is in the tech sector. And, uh, David, you were saying that uh, the layoffs in tech... They don't seem as uh, apocalyptic to you as uh, it may sound, but thousands and thousands of people losing their jobs. Well, I mean, I'm I'm sure it's terrible for the people who are losing their jobs and um, don't want to undersell that. Um, I, I think that to a certain extent, you know, if you look at the total number of people working at these companies, it shot way, way up at the early part of the pandemic. And now it's coming back down. Uh, in some ways, it feels a little bit like the the hiring didn't quite as get quite as much coverage as the firing is getting mm, right um you know and and also you know if you're looking at sort of broadly the economy tech is a is a pretty narrow slice of that so um you know it is tempting to sort of read into this as some the, the beginning of the recession that everyone has predicted i don't know if that's true or not um you know that's it i, I, I don't I don't want to undersell that if you're one of those 12,000 people, which yeah. is a lot of people, yes. uh, that is a terrible situation for you, especially because a lot of these companies and a lot of the people who work at those companies are here on visas that depend on them having a job in the United States. And if you lose your job, you have, I think, 90 days to find a new one before you get deported. So that Well, that's part of why that professor's point about getting new positions pretty quickly yeah. uh, comes hev- heavily into play. Yeah. Uh, we also learned this week Google's parent company letting 12,000 workers go. We don't know how many here. Amazon letting about 2,300 workers, we found out, out of those 18,000 job cuts company-wide. Amazon's letting the lease on a downtown Seattle office tower, the West 8th Tower, expire. So uh, the news comes in, uh, Brian, we found out the downtown Nike store is closing. Yeah. The movie theater right next to it is closing. I know. That that one was crazy. I just quickly on that Microsoft bit, I, it was so interesting to see that they hosted that big concert with Sting yes. like the day before. And so the tweet that came out, the message in a bottle was, you're fired. It's yes. like, oh, that, that'll get you. Anyway, uh, just back on, on Nike Town there. This I, was in, uh, was it Davos? Davos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, at any rate. Uh, but looking at what happened with Nike Town, um, and I think a lot of us have seen just the lack of people downtown over the past couple of years. A lot of that is office workers, of course. Tourism has been doing its thing and, and rising a little bit here. But when you talk about activity down there, it looks like the monthly visitors, and this is from the Downtown Seattle Association, less than 500,000 in right the height of the pandemic. And it was over 2 million before the, the pandemic w- was was in effect here. And so I, I think that's that's a big part of it. They're simply not getting the people in there. And uh, it, it just was a situation where I don't I don't think that space, a big, big space, was tenable to stay as it was. I wonder what you think of my uh, uh, 
a, a conversation I had I was telling you about before we started the show. I had dinner with a friend who moved to New York, came back to visit this week, and his take was that Seattle was just about to become a real city, <laughs> for better or for worse, and then the pandemic, and now this possible recession. He said that he's been here a few, a few weeks now. He said, it's like we bought, Seattle bought a grown-up outfit, and then our growth spurt got canceled, and we're in these baggy clothes, and the sleeves go way past our hands, and the cuffs are on the floor, and we're in this awkward stage of what Seattle is right now. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't mourn a store that I never went into. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a giant, you know, big box retail, not big box, but a giant retailer um, at a time when Nike town, Nike town. Yeah. At a time when giant retail stores are on the wane in downtowns across the country. Um, I do think, you know, I mean, if you think of, if you think of being, you know, a quote unquote world-class city, what that means now, I I feel like it means the Austinization of everything Mm. where, you know, housing is absolutely out of control and unaffordable to, you know, to most people um, and where, you know, you kind of have the the South Lake unionization, I guess, would be a better uh, a better example locally of everything. And um, and so I don't know that we want to be a world class city in that mold. Um, I, you know, Seattle, we're in the Pacific Northwest. I question, you know, how much our growth is ever going to be, you know, on the level of uh, of a San Francisco or an Austin, because we're we're just we're just remote. It's always been, you know, an issue with this with this location. And rainy. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's <laughs> there are limits. There are yeah. natural limits on our growth. Mm-hmm. And I think that the kind of optimism on the part of the tech sector and, you know, city boosters that we were ever going to become the new the next new big city where millions of people are moving was always a little misplaced. And I, that's a great point you make about Austin. And I think about the music scene that's there and that's actually here in Seattle, too. This is a really interesting debate to have because when you talk about growth, that can often mean gentrification. In arts and culture, there's a lot of people in that field that are moving out of our area right now. So what does it mean to be a big city? And Mm -hmm. if it means growth and pushing everybody out such that you can't afford it, well, guess what? That happened in San Francisco. And rather than talking about a great literary scene right now, you go on the tour to talk about Jack Kerouac. You don't talk about what's happening right now. And so I look at what's happening in Seattle as, yeah, there's growth that's happening in different ways, but I want to try to preserve something there so that we can have people who have lower incomes be able to stay here. And that's often musicians and people in the arts. And I want to preserve a time at the end of Week in Review where we talk about something that made us feel uplifted or even smile this week. Um, I will say that I... I, I, le- I like to learn something. I learned this week from Seattle's Channel uh, 13, the Fox uh, 13, that King County just released some tips for what to do if you find a rat in your toilet. Yep, a rat in the toilet. So apparently rain pushes more rats into the sewer systems and they could end up inside your pipes. So here's what King County says to do. Step one. Remain calm if you can. Now, if you can't remain calm, then you probably shouldn't be following a list with numbered steps. Okay, this is the time you should be screaming. Uh, Then you can proceed to the next step. What number step are we at? Uh, Step two, close the lid and then flush. And then very carefully check to see if the rat is still in there. Yes, check to see if it's still there, because what's the alternative? You never open that lid again? You, I mean, you, you can't just use your yard. That will attract more rats. So, yes, do keep trying. Open the lid, this time slowly, with a mop handle. Oh, my God, it's still in there. Don't panic if you still see the rat. They say close the bathroom door, grab some dish soap from the kitchen. Hopefully the rat didn't jump out of there. Step four, crack the lid and then squirt the dish soap into the toilet huh? and then flush it again. <laughs> It may take multiple flushes. Wait, why am I squirting dish soap onto my toilet rat? Does anybody know the answer to that? 
So that'll slide down the, the, the pipe a little faster. That was my first guess. First, I thought it was to make the porcelain slippery so it can't climb out. I hadn't even thought about making its exit pipe slipperier. <laughs> Uh, by the way, the, the, this TV report never said, so I had, to, I had to go to the King County website to find out. I also wondered, is it, wait, it's to make the water taste bad, right? So the rat is repulsed <laughs> and, and swims down, swims away. Uh, actually, the King County's website told me, you know how soap breaks up the oil on your dishes? Well, it also breaks up the oils on a rat's fur that help it repel water and stay afloat. And the soap breaks the surface tension of the water, which also makes it harder to, to float on top of it. So you're making the rat less buoyant, which is now starting to feel kind of cruel. The rat is struggling, thinking, I know I could swim better than this. Hopefully, it'll get tired after the three or four hundred flushings that you're doing every 15 <laughs> seconds right. until you can sell this house. <laughs> Bottom line, though, do you know how to keep rats out of your toilet? Uh, King County says the, the deal is they smell food in your kitchen drain, so they climb the pipe from the sewer to your home. They can't get to your sink, but they might fit in the toilet bowl. So the county says keep your kitchen sink rinsed out, rinsed out, clean it with baking soda and vinegar, keep garbage can lids closed, pick up dog waste in your yard. In fact, have your dog produce waste in someone else's yard. Yeah. Clean out places that rats like to shelter, including bushes, tall grasses, corporate think tanks, and wood piles. Or there's an alternative. The New York Times just did its trends for 2023, and one of them was pet rats. So you could just open that lid and let it out and buy some Purina rat chow. So that whole thing made me smile. I think you're underselling the King County uh, website on this, which is a cartoon that is the most delightful thing I've seen in a really long time. So I just uh, encourage people to go to publichealthinsider.com and uh, and check out that cartoon. Yeah, uh, It's uh, incredible. <laughs> it is excellent. Thank you. Good point. That'll in general, good. I don't like that I'm on a well, but in this case, I'm okay with being on a well. So that made you smile this week. <laughs> yeah, that made me smile. I, I don't share my uh, sewage with rats, I don't think. Let, let me try to switch animals here. Uh, just in talking about this, I'm super happy about and smiling about uh, the Lunar New Year celebrated this weekend and kind of cool. The Seattle Kraken are rolling out on Saturday with a cool Lunar New Year warm up jersey that actually has the year of the rabbit kind of incorporated with the Kraken logo. So it's like a crack rabbit, jack rabbit. I don't even, yeah, something along those lines. It looks really cool. I think it's going to be a cool celebration. And why not for the first place, tied for first place in the Pacific Division crack and kind of a cool thing this weekend. Excellent. Bernard, are we so far over time that I, I should... Pro- really? Okay, Bernard's saying, let's make it happen. Erica, uh, I squeezed you at the end here. Anything smile-worthy? Um, everybody uh, check out the uh, the Twitter account about a fake um, a fake note that a guy said that he his cousin got from a girl in Austin. Um, it's uh, at Henpecked Hal. Um, the Twitter, uh, the the forensic files of Twitter went to work and they <laughs> outed this guy as a liar. Um, it's like the most low stakes thing ever, but it is so hilarious. I think it's the highest and best use of Twitter. Yeah, I really <laughs> encourage everybody to check it out. I'm about to push some dish soap on that. Yeah, <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. At Henpecked Hal. Hey, um, that's we're 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 at the end of our show. I want to thank Brian Callanan, Seattle Channel, Erica Barnett, Publicola, David. Chrome in Seattle Times and our producer Kevin Kinestead and everybody else. I'm Bill Radke. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. 
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.